Welcome back to Bible Time. We are in chapter 2, verse um, 19 and 20, wrapping up chapter 2. And here it says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ is coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Now previously, yesterday, we studied verse 17, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, but uh, in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. And before that, we looked at verse 18 several weeks ago and did it kind of as a standalone, as a single. Uh, Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. And that brings us down to our text here. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, please open our understanding. Please change our values, Lord God, our decision-making in our minds, Father God. Change the way we think about things. Help us to value what you value, Lord God. I pray, Lord, that you would bless us through this message today and let thy will be done in our lives. In Jesus' name, for Christ's sake, amen. Okay, so yesterday what we studied was um, here the hope in, supper, in separation, hope in separation, and we looked at and observed how separation comes to people all over the world for all kinds of reasons, but when separation comes because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can have hope, we can have joy, and that was the body of the message yesterday. Um, then verse 18 that we studied before tells the true reason of why why Paul and his evangelistic band were taken from the church at Thessalonica when they wanted to be there so badly that he said, we endeavored, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. Now there, Paul is saying that he tried and tried and tried to get back to that church at Thessalonica, but Satan hindered us, he said. Satan would not allow them to come through. Now this is the Apostle Paul that in the book of Acts struck Elamis the sorcerer with a curse of blindness because he was resisting the gospel. This is the Apostle Paul who in the book of Acts was doing mighty signs and wonders and had great power with God. This is the Apostle Paul, who the devils said when the vagabond Jews who were exorcists tried to cast out devils in the name of Paul and of Christ, they, these the devils said to those Jews, Paul I know and Jesus I know, but who are you? And they jumped on those Jews and ran them out. So this Paul is a Paul that is known in hell. This Paul is the Paul, the apostle Paul, who has all the promises of God and the power and authority of an apostle of the Lamb, one of the twelve having taken the bishopric of Judas, having taken that, the Christ-honored and Christ-given bishopric of Judas, not the false satanic bishopric that was taken, which you discussed previously, but the true bishopric of Judas passed on to the apostle Paul, and he has the attendant signs and wonders and powers. He said that he was as one born out of due time. God had met Paul, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, in his risen glorified body had met Paul on the road to Damascus.
Damascus, and we've discussed this all before. What irony! What amazing! What an amazing reality that he who he who persecuted Christ who had been with Christ from his baptism all the way up to his crucifixion and then had heard of his burial and resurrection, but not as a friend, as an enemy was now one that Christ would select to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. Whenever the, uh, when the soldiers returned to the Sanhedrin and told them that they had seen an angel and he had rolled back the stone and Jesus rose from the dead. That was the group that Paul was running with under the name of Saul. And this Saul was taken by God and selected by God to be an apostle of the lamb. And he had power with God and he had power with men. This is the same Paul that Peter said, spoke things in some of his epistles that were hard to understand that unstable men rest as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. This apostle Paul would speak as the oracles of God. This apostle Paul would even speak the very oracles of God. This apostle Paul, who's writing the text right here in 1 Thessalonians, um, says here, even I, Paul, once and again, this Paul is writing down words that God has inspired and will be perfectly preserved with God for all of eternity and, and with man through the end of the age on earth until the heaven and earth are destroyed. That's the Paul that's talking here today and Satan hindered him. And we're not going to get into all that today. We're just going to review because we've already covered that text, but we do need to take for just a moment some consideration of the circumstances that are involved in the writing of this, of our text that we're reading here today. <coughs> Martin Luther um, penned the words to a mighty fortress is our God hundreds of years ago. And he wrote in there, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. But then in, in that message, he talks about how um, the enemy against us, the devil, his wrath and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. And he goes on and says, uh, we're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. We would lose to the devil. We would fail in our attack of the devil. And here God is showing us in the word the humanity and the frailty of the apostle Paul that in spite of all of his power and all of his favor with God, all of his great wisdom, all of his obedience to God, that the apostle Paul could not stand up against the devil himself. And for whatever reason, God did not make the devil back down that time. Do you hear that? That's a big thing. That's a big thing to comprehend that though all power is given to us in Jesus name and though Jesus gave all those promises that he gave for some reason, God allowed the devil to resist Paul and take him and his evangelistic band out of the Thessalonican church during its very formation. During its very inception, during the beginning, after three Sabbath days of reasoning with the Jews, having hardly any time to teach these people, 
excuse me, what are the oracles of God? He was taken out from them and he desperately wanted to see them and he endeavored to see them time and again. He said, I, even I, Paul, time and again, tried to get to you, endeavored to see your face. He said, but Satan hindered us. Satan had stopped them. And this is going to tie into our message that we're looking at from um, here in just a second. Who are these people? Who are these people? Are these a bunch of aristocrats down there in Thessalonica? Are these some of the most powerful families in the whole world that are being dealt with? Is this group of people that's meeting a threat to the Roman Empire? Is this a threat to Satan's kingdom? What on earth made these people so valuable that Satan would get involved? Satan would personally get involved in the gospel and the work of the gospel in this little backwater town of Thessalonica. What made these people so valuable? So very valuable. This lesson today is the worth of a soul. The worth of a soul. Here in our text it says, what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing and that's our first part and this is our heart's desire we're going to look at the heart's desire of the apostles here um, go to first corinthians 9 10 first corinthians 9 10 Here he's speaking of plowing in hope. Now the context, he's talking about how a minister of the gospel is worthy to receive wages um, of those that he ministers to. But he's telling them here that he would not use this power. He says here that he that ploweth should plow in hope and that he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. And he says, if, other, if we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? But then he's going to, going to go on and teach us a bigger lesson here than that which is in verse 14. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Look at verse 16. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. So he says, I have no special glory for just being a preacher. Verse 17, for if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. What is my reward then? What is my reward then? Verily that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. And here he speaks to these people that he doesn't want to take their money from them. He says, I desire not yours, but you. Go to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 14. I think I got the wrong text written down there. That may be 2 Corinthians 12. Let's go there real quick. 2 Corinthians 12. Yes, verse 14. He says, Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours, but you. 
I seek not yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. So here Paul is saying, you are our hope. My hope, he says, is not to get rich. My hope is not to get a kingdom. Alexander the Great took the throne at a young, uh, at a young age, excuse me, and he began to conquer the world and he traveled across Persia, defeating the Persian Empire for the hope of ruling over people, the hope of a crown, the hope of taxes, the hope of glory, the hope of money, the hope of wealth, the hope of fame, the hope of a name. But Paul says, you are our hope. Our heart's desire here, he says, for what is our hope? It's you. What about our joy? Third John verse four. It says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. I have no greater joy than to hear, excuse me, that my children walk in truth. And then the crown of rejoicing. Go to 1 Corinthians 9 again and verse 25. So they're the hope. They're the joy and they're the crown of rejoicing. He's asking the question, what is it? And the answer is that it is you. And he's saying this to the church of Thessalonica, to the believers. We'll see this in more, uh, more clearly as we read other texts a little later and get the sense of those texts, Lord willing. 1 Corinthians 9.25. <coughs> he says here, And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. They do it to obtain a corruptible, a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. So here you have him taking the analogy of those that would run in a race to gain a corruptible crown. We mentioned this the other day, that there are those that would run a marathon, 26.2 miles, in memory of the man that died running 26.2 miles after he had run um, hundreds of miles, apparently, according to legend. And then the following a couple days, he went and ran 26.2 miles to deliver a message and died doing it. And so for this man that died to deliver a temporal message about a temporal victory, to tell the town of Athens that they had defeated their enemy, this man died. And in honor of that man and his great sacrifice for love of country, these people would gather every year and they would make a crown out of branches from the mountain Olympus. Or is it Olympia? I don't remember. It doesn't matter too much. Anyway, they'd make a crown. And they would take these branches and they would call it a wreath or a laurel. And they would weave the branches with the green leaves on it. And then whenever they would run the race, the winner would get the honor of standing up there and having them put this little branch crown on his head with green leaves on it. And by the next morning, the leaves would be dead. Paul says here, they run, every man that striveth for masteries is temperate in all things. He says here, now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. We an incorruptible. We're doing it for a crown that doesn't fade away. We're doing it for a crown where the leaves do not fade. We're not doing it for some kind of legend. We're not doing it for patriotic zeal. We're not doing it for temporal gain. 
king. We're doing it for an incorruptible crown. And here in First Thessalonians, he says, he says, for what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Now, we were going to look at a couple verses in Revelation. We're going to save those for now and look at our text again there in Thessalonians. First Thessalonians, he says, are not even ye... Do you see it there in the text? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? And here's where we can get into this great purpose, our great purpose. We have our heart's desire, our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing. And then we have our great purpose, ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. Now, I'm just going to explain this to you um, quickly, and then we're going to dive into some scriptures and see the actual outplaying of this truth in the word of God, primarily there in the book of Revelation as we, um, and we'll do that for the rest of the Bible study. So he says, are not even ye in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ? I asked you the question, what was so important about these people in this little backwater town that Satan would hinder Paul from coming. Why would Paul, who met Jesus on the road to Damascus, who had a special commission from on high, who was an apostle of the Lamb, bother going to this town and facing persecution to carry a message to, the, to these people? What made these people so special? <coughs> Were their daddies and mommies rich merchants and heirs and heiresses of a great kingdom on earth? Did Paul have any hopes of gains from these people? Absolutely not. So what made them so special? What made these people so special that Satan himself would get involved in the contest? We're talking today about the worth of of a soul. We need God to change the way we look at people. Do you hear me today? Satan's not stupid. Satan was willing to resist Paul from getting the chance to share this gospel with a little backwater town of people that nobody cared about in the whole world. How come we don't value people like that? How come we don't value one soul like Satan and like Paul and like God? Because we have a carnal outlook. We have a carnal perspective. He says, our great purpose here, our, what, is our, what is our hope? What is our joy? What is our crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ? There's something here. There's a mystery here that can take the ugly, dirty old leper that's missing fingers and toes, who, is, who doesn't have anybody in this whole world that loves him. He's been a beggar all his life. He's going to die very soon. He, there's no real value in him. Nothing that can be gained except possibly getting sick from his disease, from even spending time with him. What is it about that man that makes a missionary cross continents and go to that man and sit next to him and minister to him for the hope of gaining his ear and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a mystery that beneath, underneath that man, underneath that outward shell of a human being is a living, eternal soul created by God in his own image. 
And that living eternal soul is worth so much to God that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But in order for that to have any efficacy, in order for that salvation and the sending of the son of God, Jesus Christ, to have any power to save anybody's eternal soul, that son of God, Jesus Christ, had to go to the cross of Calvary and die on the cross of Calvary. He had to suffer reproach. His beard was plucked out. His crown of thorns was beat into his head. They whipped him. They bruised him. They buffeted him. And they did it all so that he would have the opportunity of winning for himself a no good, dirty, rotten sinner in a body of clay. We don't look at people that way, but God does. We don't look at people that way, but Satan does. Do you hear me? Satan hindered Paul from getting there. And if you want to get in a total war with Satan, try to follow Jesus Christ. And in following Jesus Christ, you will be sent to share the gospel to people, most of which don't even want the gospel and think you're crazy for telling them about it. But the moment you step foot into that arena of the fight of the battle for men's souls, all hell breaks loose against you. Why? Because Satan knows the value of a soul. That's why. We might not see it, but Satan sees it. We might not see it, but Paul saw it. And it made Paul willing to suffer shipwrecks, willing to suffer privation, willing to suffer all things that he might win some. <clears throat> Let's go to the book of Revelation and look at this as it plays out in the book of Revelation. And when we're done with that, we'll be done, however long that takes. Now you're grinning over there. It might be short, it might be long, we don't know. Lord, help us today. Change our hearts. Help us to see the value of a soul. Um, as you go to Revelation chapter 4, there was, there's one other verse there at the end of 1 Thessalonians 2. It says, for ye are our glory and joy. And we're going to see this all played out in Revelation as we go through uh, this text. Go to Revelation 4.4. 4. Now it says in verse four, in verse one of chapter four, after this I looked and behold a door was opened in heaven and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me which said come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And this is a picture of the rapture of the church. Rapture is not a biblical word, um, so it would be better to go to the catching away of the church, which is biblical word. <clears throat> rapture is not a wrong word. It's just not the word that the Bible uses. And we need to try and stick as close to the Bible as we can. 
After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. The whole key to the book of Revelation was given to us um, in the very beginning. God usually outlines his own books. In fact, I'm not aware of any book that God didn't outline already. It's a great mistake to try and outline the scriptures. The best thing you can do is find the outline of the scriptures and preach the outline that God already gave in the scriptures. And if you can do that, you're getting somewhere um, with your Bible preaching and teaching. And if you miss that, then you're just kind of wandering around and you may do some good one day and do some bad the next. So um, in Revelation, he says to him, it says to John um, that he, he says there in verse 19 of chapter one, write the things which thou hast seen. That's the chapter one declaration there. And the things which are, that's the chapters two and three, and the things which shall be hereafter. And God gives us that plainly um, right here in the text. Whenever you get to chapter three, in the end of it, he says, I will show thee things which must be hereafter. This also applies to texts like Matthew 24, just to throw that in for those of you that are interested um, in studying all that stuff out. Um, His disciples asked him questions, and by asking the questions, they gave the outline for Jesus his sermon. And if you will find the questions in Jesus's answer, find the direct answers to the questions, you will find the outline that Jesus um, had for his sermon. And when you find the outline, it separates the um, all the junk out of man's religion and man's theology and lets you just see what Jesus meant and exactly what he said, and you get the true interpretation. And I encourage you to do that. Read the disciples' questions, and then from there, find Jesus. Jesus's direct answers to the questions, and it will split it out and rightly divide it into the different segments that um, each verse applies to. And um, some of you don't want to do that because you love your false doctrine too much to get right with God and get right with the Bible. You'd rather think you're smart and, and keep walking with the men that you think are smart than walk with God, but I can't help you if that's your case. So it won't hurt for you to shut me off anyway, but I love you in the Lord, and I hope you listen. And Um, follow Jesus. Now, um, here in Revelation chapter 4, we have the things that are hereafter. He says here, come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardin stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. So here's the crown. He says, you are our crown of rejoicing. Or he asked the question, what is our hope, our joy, our crown or joy or crown of rejoicing? And then he answered it there, are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here are the crowns in Revelation. The four and twenty elders are sitting here clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, which you can find the seven spirits of God in Zechariah 4, by the way, you don't have to have any conjecture about that. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast 
beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And you say, what are all those things that I'm going to tell you right at the moment? I don't really know. And honestly, right at the moment, I don't care too much because it's not what we're studying right now. But I want you to get the scene in your heart and in your mind. I, I honestly believe that a lot of times people, when they approach the book of Revelation, they're so busy trying to decipher the symbology, that, um, the symbolic things in it. Symbology is probably a new word. I call that verbicide. But people are trying to, um, so often trying to figure out the symbols and the types that they miss the basic message. Because they're so busy staring at the symbols. In any case, believe it. Believe it literally and look for the message. Look for the message in the book of Revelation. What is God teaching you? And a lot of times we miss it in our pride trying to figure out all the little symbols and this means that and that means this. Um, and if you don't have Bible for your, what you believe you understand to be a type in the book of Revelation, then I wouldn't give you a plug nickel for it. You better have Bible to back up whatever it is that you come to a conclusion on anywhere in the Bible. So here's the first beast, and it says, and the thir second, third, and fourth, it says the fourth beast was like a flying eagle, and the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. <coughs> And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So the first thing that we can observe about these crowns, ye are are crowns is the inference of this question and answer in first Thessalonians 2 17 or 2 19 and so here the first thing that we can learn is that the crowns that Paul is striving to gain he says they they struggle they strive for the mastery to receive a corruptible crown but we to receive an incorruptible crown and you are our crown but the first thing you need to get is that the crown is not for the apostle Paul's own glory it's not so that the apostle Paul can sit up and puff out his chest and say look at me i'm the number one soul winner i've got seventeen thousand. i've got a hundred and seventy thousand. i've got 1.7 million a lot of people will set up evangelism like a multi-level marketing scheme and they say well if i win one soul to christ and then that went soul goes and wins um two souls to christ and each of those goes and wins two souls and each of those i'll be responsible for ten thousand souls for the one I, that i led to christ listen god doesn't do it that way that would be like paying a man in the harvest i know this is going to burst somebody's bubble out there but you send somebody out to harvest your crop and they harvest your crop and they bring in the seeds and they say well i brought in 1000 seeds this year and they get paid for bringing in 1000 seeds and next year that seed is sown and it and each one of those 1000 seeds brings forth 100 more seeds so they come to the master of the field and even though they didn't go back to work that day they say hey i'm responsible for a hundred thousand of those seeds you paid me a penny last year i expect a hundred this year what would he say to him yeah about like that he'd laugh 
That's about right. Listen, heaven is not set up on a multi-level marketing scheme. Every man shall give account of his own self before God. You win one, you get the reward for the one that you won. And then what are you going to do with that reward? You're going to cast it at the feet of Jesus Christ. All the glory goes to Jesus Christ. There's no place in heaven for championship wrestling belts that say, I wrestled 75 people down to the altar and held them down until they cried uncle and did what I told them to do and made a profession and got baptized and joined the church. There's not going to be anything like that in heaven. So the value of the soul and the value of the crown is in giving glory to God. That's the first thing that you need to see. Those four and twenty elders, those four and twenty elders sitting on those seats, they got down off their seats and they got down on their knees, they got down on their faces before God and they cast their golden crowns at the foot of the Lamb of God. Now this is the purpose of the value, this is the first clue of the value of a soul. There's that little song about the drummer boy and he says uh, that he would try if I was this I would bring that if I was rich I would bring money if I if I was a king I would bring my kingdom I would bring all these things to little baby Jesus but I don't have anything to bring what can I bring and if and at the end of it if it's one of the stupid secular ones he might bring his drum whoop-a-dee-doo-dah but the idea behind that little story and it's, it's just a silly little story. And I hope it's, I, you know, if you hate it, then so be it. And if you love it, so be it. It's just a silly little story. But at the end of the story, he says that he'll bring him myself. I will bring him myself. And that little drummer boy got it. <clears throat> What the little babe in the manger came and became a child, became, was born of the Virgin Mary and lived a perfect sinless death life and died a sinless death on the cross, becoming sin for us and was buried and rose again the third day by the name of Jesus Christ, the righteous. The purpose for which he did that was the souls of men. What makes something valuable to you? What makes sense? You know, you give a kid, you can get a gift card in the mail from a loved one, and you're like, oh man, that store is all the way in that other town. It's an hour and a half drive. When am I ever going to get a chance to use this thing? And you're kind of annoyed, and you stick it in your wallet, and then someday you finally get a chance to use it, and you use it up, and you buy the merchandise, and the kid in the back seat says, can I have that card? And they will take that card and cherish that card and value that card and love that card that has no monetary value or use on the face of this earth. And they will play with that card and they'll probably enjoy that card more than whatever you, you will enjoy. Then they will probably enjoy that card more than you will enjoy whatever it is you bought with that card. Value is determined by the purchaser. Value is determined. There's an old saying, the customer's always right, and it hacks a lot of people off, makes some people really mad that think of themselves in a more artistic way, and they think, well, no, the customer's not always right. Well, at the end of the day, when it comes to the check getting written, the customer's always right. Now, obviously, the customer may be wrong, but does it really matter as far as economics are concerned? Not one bit. And you may be standing there on your high, high artistic values and, and your conscience being clear, and you might be sitting there eating nothing for dinner. Well, the one that denied you the pay for something they didn't want to buy because you wouldn't do it the way they wanted it is sitting at home eating a turkey dinner. 
So value is in the eye of the purchaser. What makes something worth something? An object is worth what somebody will pay for it. That's all it's worth. If somebody will pay $100 for it, that's what it's worth. If somebody will pay $10,000 for it, that's what it's worth. Now, if everybody in the world knows that you can get one for $100 and somebody goes and buys one for um, $1,000, then we would all say, what a fool. He should have checked the market. What is the market? What is the market? The market is where people buy things. And what makes something worth something in the market? What people will pay for it. But if everybody in the market is willing to pay $10 for a tomato, you're not going to get one for less. But if nobody in the market is willing to spend 10 cents to buy one tomato, you're not going to have to spend that much because that price will be below that or there will no longer be tomatoes in the market, which may also come to pass. May not be worthwhile to even grow them anymore at that price. But in any case, value is determined by those that purchase. And Jesus Christ, the Bible says, purchased us with his blood. He bought us with his blood on Calvary. We are not redeemed with um, corruptible things such as silver and gold from our vain conversation received by tradition from our fathers. Maybe mixing that up with other verses. But it goes on and says in Peter, but you are redeemed. In its, in its context, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus Christ paid the price of his blood on Calvary for eternal souls. Jesus Christ was willing to become sin for us to save our eternal souls. And the crown then, the crown of rejoicing, the hope and the glory of a person is not for my glory, but it is to reward Christ with that which he purchased. The value of it is in that Christ already paid for it. And whenever you turn that soul through convincing them with the power of the Holy Spirit and the preached word of God of their sin and their need for a Savior and they turn to Jesus Christ, that is a crown of rejoicing that can be cast at the feet of Jesus. Look at chapter 5, verse 10 of Revelation. Look what God says about these people. It says, And hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. What makes that little leper worth anything? You see a decrepit, rotting old man with a debilitating and highly transferable disease. God sees a king and a priest. And that's the only reason there's value. And it makes no sense. It it doesn't make sense. Why would God look down from heaven and see the rebellious, backwards man that I was going to become and choose to die on the cross of Calvary for my sin? It makes no sense. But if Christ chooses to value a man like me like that, then it behooves us to value others like Christ does. 
We're talking about the worth of a soul. What makes the soul worthwhile? The price that Christ paid. Let's look a little bit more at our great purpose. Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Go to Revelation 15. We're going to look at several verses here. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God and they sing the song of Moses the servant of God and the song of the lamb saying great and marvelous are thy works Lord God almighty just and true are thy ways thou king of saints who shall not fear thee O Lord and glorify thy name for thou only art holy for all nations shall come and worship before thee for thy judgments are made manifest here on this sea of glass are the assembled people of the church of Thessalonica at this point in history what John is seeing has not happened yet in 2022 in the month of October on the 27th day where we're gathered here in the in the United States of America in the state of Missouri we can say with all authority that this has not happened yet John is seeing something that will happen and this thing that John will see is an assembly and a gathering of the saints of God them that have gotten victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God and here in heaven will not only be those directly involved in the tribulation but those that died before and were buried and rose again and those that were caught up to meet Christ in the air And these here are standing before God. He says, what is, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? What could induce us to spend our money, to spend our time, to spend our life, to give our careers, to give our hopes, to give our advancement, to give everything that we have to be persecuted, to be mistreated, to be hated of all men? What could induce us to love you like this? What is our hope? What is our joy? What is our crown of rejoicing? Our not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. And here is given for us a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ gathered here with his saints and they're worshiping God and singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. The shirts that you're wearing, the clothes, the dresses, the skirts, the socks, they're all going to pass away. The house that you live in is going to pass away. The car that you drive is going to pass away and fade away. The money in your bank account is all going to go away. Your own body of flesh is going to rot and decay in a tomb unless Jesus Christ comes back before you physically die. You'll be laid in the grave and the worms will go after your flesh and there'll be nothing left but dust. Dust thou art and unto dust thou shalt return. But underneath that clay vessel is an eternal soul made in the 
image of Almighty God, an eternal, never-dying soul, that Jesus Christ said that is so valuable, I will die for that young lady, and I will die, and I will bear her sins on Calvary and take them to the grave and leave them there, and I will be raised again on the third day to give that young lady newness of life so that she can stand in my presence. This is the value. This is the worth of the soul. The worth of the soul is infinite. The worth of the soul is eternal. The worth of the soul is never ending. And the worth of a saved man or woman's soul is the worth of the fact that not only is that soul eternal, not only is that soul infinite, not only is the soul valuable purely because of its longevity, because it will never pass away and it ceased to exist but the value of the saved saints eternal soul is when they stand before God in the presence of the almighty and they behold the face of their beloved and they look on the hands and the side and the feet of the lamb of God who was slain to take away the sins of the world and they themselves cast whatever crowns whatever riches whatever glory they have at the foot of the resurrected Jesus Christ and sing the songs of the lamb and of Moses and they sing these songs having the golden harps hallelujah to the lamb hallelujah to the lamb that was slain this is the worth of the soul it says who shall not fear thee O Lord and glorify thy name for thou only art holy for all nations shall come and worship before thee God will save souls out of every single nation There will be people there from every nation standing before God. It's a mystery to me that the devil's hatred for God is so intense that it's worth it to him to try and stop this. But it is. Verse 5, after this I looked, after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened, and the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled and I heard a great voice out of the temple let's go on to chapter let's jump straight to chapter 19 I'm going to skip over the plagues and the fall of Babylon let's go right to chapter 19 here and after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven a great voice of what much people in heaven saying alleluia salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God for true and righteous are his judgments for he hath judged the great whore which did commit did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand and again they said alleluia And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen. Alleluia. The only reason they ever get back in their seat is so they can fall down and worship him again. How about that? Hallelujah. Alleluia. 
Amen. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude. A great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Hallelujah. I can't even imagine what that day will be like. Will you be there? The worth of the eternal soul right here will be to provide for the king of kings and lord of lords a multitude. The Bible says that the glory of the prince is in much people. Having many people, and that's to speak even, that's in the book of Proverbs, even an earthly kingdom. You say, you're the king, and I look at your kingdom, and there's 35 people that belong to your kingdom. Well, you're not much of a king. So who's got the biggest kingdom? Even in this world, people know that. You're looking, who's got the most people? Who's got the biggest kingdom? Everybody jockeying for position and power. But Jesus Christ will be king of his kingdom. And there will be multitudes who, when they worship him, will have a voice like great waters and mighty thunder. And they will say to God, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Look at what they say in verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. Here's another reason of the value of the eternal soul, a bride for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ on earth never had a wife. He never touched a woman inappropriately or suggestively or even flirtatiously. He never flirted with a woman. He was perfect, and it wasn't because he didn't love women. He did, as you can obviously see. Mary Magdalene washed his feet with her hair and wept, and he defended her honor before those other men um, whenever they tried to accuse her and accuse him of being wicked for even letting her touch him. But Jesus Christ was pure, and his relationships... And he never allowed one woman to ever take the place of even being considered a a hopeful candidate for marriage. Why? Because Jesus Christ has a bride in the church. The bride of Jesus Christ is the um, collective conglomerate of eternal souls. You say, well, well, that's just kind of weird. Well, it's weird if you think Jesus is only a man. If you think Jesus is only a man, then that does get really weird. But if you understand that Jesus Christ is God Almighty, that he is God in the flesh, that he created the heavens and the earth, and that he made everything that exists, and that Jesus Christ can't just come up with a bride any old way that would be worthy to be his bride... You think about this for just a second. This is the whole point. What's the point of that whole story where Adam has to name the animals? And he doesn't find a suitable mate for himself. He doesn't find someone to be his companion, his help that is meet. And God says he made man in his own image. And then God says it is not good that man should dwell alone. God was teaching Adam and the whole world the whole purpose for why he made man and why he allowed the tree to be in the garden and why he allowed sin to be introduced to the world and why he chose to redeem man from sin. It was all for the purpose of a bride. It says here, 
Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, write, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the lamb. And he saith unto me, these are the true sayings of God. All this is happening while the world is suffering the tribulation. Well, the world is going through the time of Jacob's trouble here up in heaven the church that has been caught away is being prepared and adorned as a bride to meet her bridegroom and here is the marriage supper of the lamb and then we find Jesus Christ coming to judge look at verse 11 and I saw heaven open this ties into our text are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming and here is the second coming of Christ to earth he's already caught his bride up to glory. The marriage supper of the Lamb is finished. It says in verse 11, verse 11, and I saw heaven open to behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. His name is called the word of God. Not only is the bride not only are you our hope our joy our rejoicing because you you are a crown to cast at his feet, but you are also our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing because you are a bride for the lamb. And not only are you our hope, our joy, or rejoicing because you're a crown and a bride, but you are our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing because you are the army that will come back with Christ to rule and reign. You say, what? Who are these people down in Thessalonica. Who are this? Who's this little church? Who are these little people? Who's that bald headed, maybe crook backed guy over there that's trying to preach the gospel and people are stoning him and hating him? And why? Why are all of the heavens focused on this moment? Why are there angels battling devils over the town of Thessalonica? Well, this man preaches. Why is Satan driving these other people mad so that they'll drive this man Paul out of the town? Why? Why is Satan so interested that he is putting all of his energy and forces and powers into stopping this gospel of Jesus Christ from going forward? What makes these so valuable? What is the worth of these eternal souls? And we see here that the, that the third thing that we'll see in the last today is that they are the armies that come with Jesus Christ from heaven. The Bible says his eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in white linen, white and clean. And the Bible tells us, lo, he cometh with ten thousands of his saints. This is the bride coming with Christ. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp two-edged sword. Goeth a sharp sword, it says, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written king of kings and lord of lords and I saw an angel standing in the sun and you see this final battle take place and Jesus Christ destroys his enemies and he sets up the great white throne of judgment after a thousand year reign 
And we've come down to our last text here, our treasure, our great, our heart's desire, our great purpose, and finally our treasure, 1 Thessalonians 2.20, for ye are our glory and joy, Revelation 21, verse 9, and there came unto me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked with me, saying, come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. Those little people down there in Thessalonica looked like nothing to the world, but to God they were everything. And to the devil, they were everything because those little people would be the ones to trample on his grave. Those were the ones that had taken all hope of his redemption from him because, and boy, that'd be a hard one to even explain. The devil's only hope of redemption would be to defeat God. And when Jesus Christ died for us and was buried and rose again, all hope that the devil could ever have of any kind of redemption was completely obliterated through the victory of Jesus Christ on Calvary. Revelation 21, 9 there tells us, I'll show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Look at verse 24. It tells us about this city coming down out of heaven. Don't get confused. The city is not the lamb's wife. It's the people in the city that are and we'll see that here in verse 24 and um, go ahead and get 23 and the city had no need of the sun neither of the moon to shine in it for the glory of God did lighten it and the lamb is the light thereof and the nations of them which are saved shall walk in in the light of it and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it and the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day for there shall be no night there and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie but they listen to this but they which are written in the lamb's book of life that's the lamb's bride ye what is our hope or joy crown or crown of rejoicing are not even ye in the presence of our lord jesus christ it is coming for ye are our glory and joy revelation 22 and verse 3 and there shall be no more curse but the throne of god and of the lamb shall be in it and his servants shall serve him and they shall see his face and his name shall be in their foreheads and there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Verse 14, blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for this glory, this hope, this joy of re- crown of rejoicing, this joy that we have, Lord God, help us to value people the way that you do and help us to be encouraged that you value us in such a way as this. Lord, it's beyond our comprehension. We love you today and we thank you and we worship you in Jesus' precious name and for his sake, amen.